Welcome to Inside Divorce. My name is Hindel Grossman, the owner of the law firm called Grossman & Associates LTD, located in Newton and Nantucket, Massachusetts. Hello and welcome to Inside Divorce. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with Andy Schwartz, who is a Massachusetts and other state conveyancing attorney, but based in Massachusetts. So welcome, Andy. How are you on the snowy day? I'm great, Hindel. Thanks for having me. Good. Well, it's nice that we can work remotely and not get stuck in the snow, although I am recording from my office today. And so would you tell our listening audience about yourself, please? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So I have been an attorney in Massachusetts since 1993. I grew up in New York on Long Island, and I came to Massachusetts originally to attend college. I graduated Brandeis University. And then I spent a few years down in Atlanta, Georgia. I went to Emory University School of Law. But I had met my wife at Brandeis, and she was from this area. So we really wanted to come back up to the Boston area. So we came back up, took the bar exam, and working in the legal field and touching real estate pretty much my entire career. Wow. So what firm are you affiliated with now? So right now, I'm with the law offices of Crowley and Cummings. It is a law firm that focuses only on real estate law, which is nice. I think the legal field, similar to the medical field or maybe some other things, is becoming a lot more specialized these days. As you know, you focus on divorce and family law. There are some attorneys who do only personal injury, you know, some attorneys who do criminal defense. I think it's nice that we can have a lot of different attorneys who focus on specific areas, and it really brings a focus and a lot of knowledge to that area. So earlier in my career, I did do a bunch of different things. I worked for the Mass Attorney General's office for the first year in the trial department, but focusing on real estate-related trials, eminent domain takings. And then I was a solo practitioner and also practiced with my father-in-law for about 15 years. Oh, okay. Yeah, that was nice. He retired in 2000, and I was by myself for a while. But you know, the real estate world changed a lot after the financial meltdown, financial crisis of 2008. The banks became a lot more regulated. The government, the CFPB, stepped in, thanks to our Senator Elizabeth Warren, and imposed a lot more regulations on mortgage lenders. So as a result, it kind of became, in my opinion anyway, difficult for small firms or even solo practitioners, which I was, to effectively handle conveyancing work due to the lot of, there was a lot of paperwork involved, a lot of back office things that really needed to get done. So I described you as a conveyancing attorney. So what does that mean? Well, conveyancing is just a fancy word for buying and selling transactional work, basically. So one of our main focuses for conveyancing is to represent lenders, mortgage lenders, and handle the closing on their behalf. We also do represent individual buyers and sellers. Sometimes when we're representing buyers, in fact, very often when we're representing buyers, we're also acting as the lender's settlement agent and conducting the closing on behalf of the lender. So you're performing two functions at a closing, potentially, on behalf of the buyer and on behalf of the bank, essentially, the lender. Yes, that's correct. If anybody's listening and they're familiar with commercial transactions, that's never going to be the case. Always in a commercial transaction, the buyer will have their own counsel and the lender will have their own counsel. But in a residential transaction, it's fairly common for one attorney or one firm to act in both capacities. I see. Do you handle primarily residential transactions? Yes, I do. The great majority of my focus is residential transactions. Our firm does also handle commercial transactions, but I'm not that involved with those. I should say, by the way, Crowley and Cummings, since I think you asked about this, is 
we have 14 full-time attorneys, or maybe up to 15 now, 14 to 15, <laughs> I think 15, the full-time attorneys. We also have some other contract attorneys that work with us sometimes for the more remote closings, things out in Western Massachusetts or in Connecticut, New Hampshire, up in Maine. We, we close in all of those states, Rhode Island. So we do have some attorneys that are not full-time, but do work for us in those capacities. And then we also have a large back office staff, paralegals, title examiners, accounting folks. So it's pretty robust. Yeah, it's a very active firm. I'm sure they can handle a lot of transactions at the same time. So I'm curious about something you said about your professional experience and background. You said something about eminent domain. What was that like? So when I first started out, I was working with the state Massachusetts Attorney General's office, and that was litigating matters when the state would take private property, which the state, most people are surprised that the state could take their private property if they wanted to. If there was a public purpose, a common example, let's say for highway, if they were going to widen a road or widen an intersection, or at that time, there were a lot of cases involving the big dig and property that the state had taken for purposes of the big dig, either for the tunnel or the Zakin Bridge and things like that. So when the state does take property, though, they can't just take it and not pay the property owner. They have to pay the property owner fair market value. If the property owner feels that the value was too low that they got paid, the property owner does have the right to file a lawsuit against the state to contest that. And it could ultimately go to a trial where each state would, each side rather, would bring in experts and the experts would testify as to what the value of that property was. I was a new attorney, a young attorney. I didn't handle all the things by myself, but I was able to assist on those trials and work with the more senior attorneys, which was very interesting. That's a really interesting aspect of real estate law in Massachusetts, I guess, in all over the country. And you mentioned something about how the real estate work for lawyers changed probably for everybody in, in 2008. And so how did that change? Well, as I mentioned, there became a lot more regulation, a lot more formality as to what had to be done. The documents all changed. They became a lot more closing documents. Back when I first started, you know, you could buy a house and probably only sign, you know, five or six pieces of paper. You know, you had the settlement statement, you had a, a promissory note, a mortgage, and maybe a few documents from the bank. And that was basically it. But with each passing year, there became more and more disclosures and other forms, and that increased exponentially about 10 years ago, as we said. Were the regulatory increases to protect the consumer, that is the buyer of the real estate, from lending practices? To some degree, yes. And they were also, believe it or not, somewhat to protect the lenders from, there were some bad actors out there who were not being honest and who were submitting fraudulent loan applications. I mean, a lot of the fault really was with the lender because the lenders kind of looked the other way in some cases and didn't do very much checking or diligence of things. But it's kind of just to protect the system as a whole and individual buyers, both from unscrupulous practices. Got it. So sometimes you represent buyers in real estate transactions, right? And sometimes sellers. Can you tell us a little bit about what you look for when you're representing a seller of a real estate? Sure. And I'll preface this by saying frequently the person I'm representing is both they're selling and then they're turning around and buying something else. Right. So I have to just kind of switch hats when I'm doing that. But to, you know, in a seller, I usually get involved with a seller. Either they'll contact me directly, but more often than not, I'll be contacted by a real estate agent or real estate broker who is representing them in the sale. And sometimes it's before the listing goes live. Just we can do things like 
check the title search, and we can talk about title in a little bit more detail in, in a few minutes. But title basically is your history of your property that you own. It's more of an idea rather than a thing. You know, a lot of people are familiar with the title to their car, for example, which is an actual piece of paper that you get from the registry of motor vehicles once you pay off your car loan and you get the title. So but when we're talking about real estate, the title is kind of the history and the record. And in Massachusetts, we can actually go back hundreds of years. We've got a great system at the Registry of Deeds, and it's all there. And now it's all computerized and all searchable. When I first started, just interestingly enough, I was practicing in Brockton, which is in Plymouth County. And of course, Plymouth is the oldest county, the oldest part of Massachusetts. Uh, so the living. records are the oldest there, huh? Yeah, it's very cool. If for you know real estate geeks like me, you can actually go to Plymouth, to the Registry of Deeds, and you can view documents from the pilgrims times really from the 1600s the very first deeds that the settlers the pilgrims were able to negotiate with uh, native americans down in, in that area that's very fascinating just like who had authority to grant title back then well i think they mostly gave themselves authority yeah. But, uh, yeah. it's there and if you really wanted to you could if you live down in that county area or down the south coast you could theoretically trace your property ownership all the way back to the 1620s i think which is very cool but the standard, we don't have to go back that far for our modern transactions. The standard that we work with is 50 years. Yeah. So when we search titles and we examine titles, it's sufficient if we can establish a good, clean title going back 50 years. Or if we can't, we have to go back a little further if you can't find 50 years. But typically you can. That just brings us back to uh, you know when we represent sellers, very often the sellers will look at their title before the property even gets listed just to see what's out there and make sure that there are no problems or, or surprises. Problems. Yeah, or surprises, which there often are. So when we find them, then we can start working on them and get them cleared up the earlier, the better, obviously. Right, right. So that's a great idea to help make the transaction, the selling transaction go a little smoother. So what's the process of buying and selling real estate? What documents are needed along the way? Well, it depends. Obviously, whether you're buying or selling, it's very different. If you're buying real estate, you're also probably, not necessarily, but you're probably working with a real estate agent. It's important to find one that kind of fits your style, is, understands your needs. You know, real estate agents are like anybody else. You know, they can be great at what they do, but, you know, you're, you may not mesh with them. You know, there are some that specialize in finding properties in the city, you know, that specialize in condos, that specialize in working with first-time buyers. Or possibly if you're an empty nester and you're looking to sell your home in the suburbs and move back to the city or downsize, you know, seniors, there are some real estate agents that specialize in working with seniors. So it's really important to interview your real estate agent that you're thinking of working with or get recommendations from friends or family. And don't just pick the first one that comes along or, you know, your friend's cousin who just got their real estate license. You know, it's important it. to do some due diligence to make sure they're going to understand yeah. what you need. It's a very personal relationship. It very, very much so. It's a combination of a business transaction, but also a personal transaction. You're going to spend probably a lot of time with your real estate agent if you're a buyer. Right. And you have to trust their advice when it comes to the value of what you're buying. If they Correct. know the market well, they would know that. The broker would know that. Yeah, absolutely. And they may have other insight. You know, For example, right now, because there's very little inventory in Massachusetts, there are not very many homes for sale. It's what we consider to be a seller's market. In other words, sellers mostly have a lot of leverage as to price and terms. Yeah. Um, and this has been the case for the last couple of years. We've seen some crazy things that we never used to see. For example, 
these bidding wars where properties are selling for considerably over the asking price or Mm -hmm. buyers are waiving contingencies that they would not have normally waived. They're waiving their financing contingencies. They're waiving the right to inspect the property, things like that. So you really want to have some good, solid advice from a real estate agent before doing that. Yeah. Those are rights that mean a lot to give up for buyers. They really want a property. They're giving up some rights. Right. And, you know, it's a free market. People can do that if they so choose, but it's good for them to be informed and to really understand what the risks and possible issues are. Yeah, for sure. I understand that. So Massachusetts has, it's unique. I don't know if any other state has this, but it's a two-step process effectively with an offer and a purchase and sale agreement. Can you tell us what those are? Sure, absolutely. They're both contracts, but the offer is the initial contract. It has to be in writing to be effective. You can't verbally agree with somebody to buy or sell real estate. I mean, you can, but it's not going to be legally binding. So the offer is the initial document that the buyer submits. And if the seller agrees, the seller signs it. And it contains the important terms, such as the price, the date that the closing is going to happen, any contingencies that there might be, anything like that. It has to contain all of those. But it doesn't need to be terribly complicated. It's very often just a two-page form. The state associations of realtors have set forms that they use, but there's no requirement that you actually use those. It's a common practice, but it can be any writing that's signed by both people. And then typically what happens is that about 10 to 14 days after the offer is accepted, then you go to the second contract, which is the purchase and sale agreement, or as we sometimes just shorten to the P&S. And that is a much more detailed contract. It's typically could be anywhere from six to 12 pages, contains a lot more legalese, a lot more boilerplate, but the key terms are typically the same. It's, you know, unless both parties agree to change it, you can't change the price. You can't change the date. You can't add in contingencies that weren't there before, unless there's mutual agreement by both sides. I would add also, Hindel, the other big difference is that at the offer, Usually you have a small amount of a deposit that the buyer puts down, what they call sometimes earnest money, you know, usually a thousand dollars, sometimes it's a little bit more, a little bit less, but thousand to fifteen hundred is pretty standard. But yeah. then once the uh, purchase and sale gets signed, the buyer is going to be committing a larger amount of money, a larger deposit, maybe three percent of the purchase price or five percent of the purchase price in some cases. So there's still even after the purchase and sale, which is the longer contract is signed, there's still ways to get out of it. if there are contingencies, aren't there? Yes. The most common one that we usually see is the mortgage contingency or the financing contingency. Yeah. And the way that works is that the buyer has a period of time, maybe it's 30 days, maybe a little bit longer, to get qualified for their mortgage. And if by that date that's identified, if they're not able to get qualified, then they can notify the seller and get their deposit back. And that happens sometimes, you know, somebody might lose a job or their financial situation might change. If that date passes, though, and the buyer does not request an extension or request their money back by that date, even if they don't qualify later or they try to just back out or have cold feet, then the seller could potentially keep their deposit as what's called liquidated damages. So that means that the seller would just keep their deposit and then the deal would terminate. Right. Have you had some, any litigation over that liquidated damages clause where a buyer can't perform because, well, for whatever reason, they back out? You see any interesting yeah. cases? I personally don't handle any of them. I'm not a litigator, but I've certainly 
heard of situations where that happens. Honestly, though, it unless we're talking about very significant deposit, very often it's not cost-effective to litigate. Yeah. Most residential transactions in Massachusetts, the deposits are you know, certainly less than $50,000. That's it, mm-hmm. sometimes much less. You know, you occasionally have them where there are more if they're very expensive properties. But typically, even when there's a dispute, they tend to get negotiated either through mediation or some side of arbitration or just the parties wind up working it out. Right. Because to hire attorneys and go through litigation, it's just not effective for time or money. Right, right. So because you practice or you're, at least your firm practices conveyancing, you know, real estate conveyancing in other states, how does Massachusetts compare to Maine, for example, or Rhode Island in, in the way it operates? So it's similar in some ways, but in many of those other states, for example, in Connecticut, Rhode Island, you don't have that two-step process. You go directly to a purchase and sale agreement. And the inspections are frequently, the time frames are a little bit different. The buyers would still have a period of time to conduct inspections and get out of the deal if there are significant problems with the property. So it's a little bit different, but conceptually, it's still the same, basically in New England. If anybody's listening and had experiences maybe with real estate out west, that's done much differently out there. You know, they have a two-step escrow process. The money all gets held and it's a much different closing process. I'm not that familiar with it, honestly heard the expression escrow agents in other states. It seems like title companies become the escrow agents and individual law firms aren't really used that often. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Here in Massachusetts, we're still a very attorney-centric state. And in fact, (laughs) about 10 years ago, there was a very big federal lawsuit where there were some out-of-state title and escrow companies that were doing business in Massachusetts. And the real estate bar wasn't too happy about that. So they brought suit in federal court and it wound up Shutting them down. Shutting them down, basically, right. And and it established that a real estate closing in Massachusetts is considered to be the practice of law. So you have to have an attorney to certify the title. Got it. I remember that was interesting. Kind of change change the way business is done here and it didn't work. Yeah. And I think, of course, I have an interest in that system, but I think it is really much more consumer protective when you have attorneys that are handling things. So let's go back to this title examination because it's a discretion most people know about but don't know exactly what it is. You go to the Registry of Deeds, they're by county, and some magically these records, old dusty records, now computerized, thankfully, but are available to show you what the history is of a piece of land, right? And so what are the good things and the bad things, or I guess more of the bad things, what are the concerning things that sometimes come up when you do a title exam? So we look for quite a few different things. The most common things or the things that we encounter most often, we make sure that all of the mortgages that all of the prior owners had on the property have been properly discharged. In other words, you know, when you take a mortgage, that mortgage gets put on the public record at the Registry of Deeds, and it remains there unless a discharge is recorded. So if you, let's say, sold your property or if you refinanced and paid off the loan, Paying off the loan is only step one. You have to make sure that the bank or the lender actually sends a piece of paper to the registry to let the world know that the loan has been paid off and the mortgage is what's called discharged. It's not effective anymore. It happens sometimes that either for whatever reason, the discharge doesn't get recorded. Maybe the lender sent it to the property owner and they stuck it in a drawer and never sent it to the registry. We did have a number of cases where lenders went, ceased to exist. You know, there were a lot of bank failures in them. The last yep. few decades. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, so you'd have to try to track down who has authority to sign, who are the successors, all that kind of stuff. So that's one 
missing discharges or improperly, even improperly discharged mortgages are a problem too. Other things that we look for are probate matters. When there was a death of one of the owners, you have to make sure that the probate, if a probate was needed, that that was done properly, that all the proper parties had noticed that all the proper parties' interests were accounted for. There are other kinds of liens that could be on the property, tax liens, child support liens. I'm sure you've had some experience with those. If somebody owes child support and doesn't pay, they could have a lien on their property. And those are actually very tricky because those could be what's called after acquired. They could apply to after acquired property. So for example, if you have one of the parents who is not paying child support and they purchase property even after the fact, that lien, if they haven't paid, could attach to that property even though they didn't own it at the time of the original divorce or when the original child support order was entered. Ah, I see. So it's really just an asset that can be attached in order to compel somebody to pay their child support or secure a child support payment. Exactly. So, you know, when the purchase happens, we want to make sure that the buyer has what's called clear marketable title. Right. Just to bring it back for divorce for a moment, if people get divorced and they have a marital home, for example, and it's titled, you know, in the name of both husband and wife, and they get divorced and do you find problems with that when that property gets sold sometimes? Occasionally. It depends. What has to happen depends on the timing of it, really. A lot of times we see parties that are in the process of getting divorced and the divorce has not yet become final. So as long as both of the parties sign the deed, selling the property to the new buyer, that's fine. There is an automatic restraining order. As a, When you file for divorce, one party can't sell a marital asset by themselves. But as long as both parties agree to it, then that's fine. Then that's not a problem. But we just have right. to make sure that that's the case. If it's post-divorce, you know, if the parties get divorced and then sometime later wind up selling the property, you know, we just want to, we would have to review the separation agreement or any orders from the probate court pertaining to the divorce to make sure that, let's say, one party is supposed to get paid a certain amount down the road. You know, the agreement is we're getting divorced now, but one spouse will continue to live in the property for a period of time and then maybe either sell or refinance and pay the other spouse X number of dollars. So we would have to review those agreements to make sure that those payments are being made. Yep. Gets a little tricky. I know when one spouse is trying to refinance and keep the house and remove the other spouse's name from that original mortgage obligation. Yeah, I get calls sometimes on that or on other similar situations. I want to remove X person from the deed. Can I just remove them? And, you know, the short answer is no, you can't. If somebody is on the deed, they have to affirmatively sign off their interest. You can't just right. remove somebody. And it's complicated by mortgages, too, that are on the property. Yes, that's correct. If there is a mortgage on the property, the bank or the lender would have to agree that person A can come off because, you know, they would have to make sure that person B has the financial wherewithal to continue to pay or refinance. It's a very interesting area of the law to practice in, particularly in Massachusetts, where, well, there's so many transactions. It really is. I mean, I don't think there are any young kids out there who are sitting in there and saying, gee, I really want to be a real estate lawyer when I grow up. But it actually <laughs> it actually is uh, pretty interesting. I think so. anyway. Yeah, you know, I find it interesting. And commercial real estate is obviously quite different. Well, the process is probably the same, too, with the offer and purchase and sale agreement. But it's but the purpose of the transaction is very different. Yeah, there are a lot more, typically a lot more moving parts in a commercial transaction. You get involved with zoning opinions and frequently, depending on the type of use, there might be leases involved. You know, there's a lot more complexity usually in a commercial transaction. 
Yeah. We occasionally see some small transactions that are done as commercial loans, but they those are more similar to residential. Let's say it's a doctor or a dentist that's buying a little condo somewhere that he's going to have his office or the small property. And those might be structured as commercial from the lender side, but those are a little bit more like residential transactions. I see. All right. Well, one last question on the topic of trusts. When people want to buy a piece of property and put it in the name of a trust, what do you recommend? How do you handle that? So I recommend that they speak to their trust and estates attorney to make sure when anybody is getting involved in a trust, I always say that they should have a holistic approach to it. You want to make sure that somebody is looking at all of that person's assets. There are different types of trusts, you know, the different ways you can set it up. So you want to be sure that it works for them and takes into account all of their other assets and liabilities. It certainly can be done. It's done frequently all the time. There's some additional documents that need to be filed. A trust is a separate legal entity, so that may limit what you can do with the property depending on what type of trust it is. There are some lenders, for example, like if you want to refinance, they would require you to take the property out of the trust depending on how the trust is set up. I see. So it might limit your options if the property is owned by a trust as far as financing. Yes, it might, but then it also does provide additional protection in many cases from liability. So it might be a good thing to do. Right. Well, Andy, it's been a pleasure. How can our listeners reach you if they need you for a real estate transaction? Well, they can always call my office. The main office number is 781-251-0540, or they can reach out to me by email. My email is a Schwartz, which is A-S-C-H-W-A-R-T-Z at Crowley Cummings, C-R-O-W-L-E-Y-C-U-M-M-I-N-G-S.com. I highly recommend they reach you if they need you. Thank you, Andy. Thanks a lot, Inda. If you'd like more information about the topics covered in our podcast, please contact us at Grossman & Associates. You'll find a competent and experienced team of compassionate, responsive, and innovative legal professionals email me at hindel at grossmanltd.com. My first name is spelled H-I-N-D-E-L-L. Or call us at 617-969-0069. Thank you for listening.